have a Bible, open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 28. We're going to finish the book of Acts this morning, the Lord willing. <clears throat> I don't get too long-winded. What a great journey it has been. For those of you that have been with us throughout these studies in Acts, I was thinking about it this morning and, and just realizing, Lord, I have just so benefited from studying your word in, in this book because it has just helped to enrich the entire New Testament. Uh, for me to understand where things happened and how they happened, to whom they happened and how they came about. And, and it's just been a glorious time for me. You know, when I get up and I teach, I call that mopping up. <laughs> my blessing is when I'm sitting in my office for hours and hours and I'm just searching through the books and I'm lifting things constantly up in prayer, praying for you, praying for our church, praying for the message. That is just such a blessing. So that when I get to this point, I sometimes feel like I cheat you guys because I only got an hour with you. And I, I just have so loved studying this book. So last week we looked at the storm which had caught uh, Paul and 275 others <laughs> totally off guard. They were on an Egyptian cargo ship in the Mediterranean. The storm, this Eurocliden storm that came up suddenly and blew them across the Mediterranean Sea to the coast of an island called Malta. We see here in slide, the first slide here, it's an island in the Mediterranean uh, that's south of Sicily, north of the north coast of Africa. And there we saw a harrowing account of this shipwreck as they attempted to make a run for shore. Remember, uh, the bow of the ship got stuck either on the rocks or in the sand and the stern was breaking up. I mean, it was just a scene. Now, at that time, because there were prisoners on board, the Apostle Paul being one of them, the, the soldiers, they were drawing their swords. They were getting ready to execute the prisoners because that's what you do. If you're a Roman guard and your prisoners are going to escape, it's sort of a me or you kind of a thing because they were accountable. They would lose, they would forfeit their lives if they lost their prisoners. And, and yet Julius, the centurion, steps up and he says, no, 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 no. And he, Paul has great favor with this man. We'll talk about that as we go this morning. He says, no, put your swords away. Uh, we're going to make it to shore. And he orders everybody off the ship. Uh, and they get into the water. He, the, the ones that could swim first, he says, swim for shore. And the ones that couldn't, remember the, the, the transom of the ship is breaking apart. And so there are pieces of wood from the ship floating by the ship by that point. So the people that couldn't swim were able to grab onto some of the flotsam there and make it to shore themselves. So all in all, all 276 souls on that cargo ship were saved, made it safely to shore. So the locals on Malta, Luke is very specific. He tells us that they extended extraordinary kindness to these castaways and uh, they went about building a bonfire on the beach because the people were cold. It says they were cold. It was still raining. They were cold and wet and they wanted to get them dried out and warmed up. So uh, that's what they did. Now, in an interesting turn of events, the Apostle Paul was gathering sticks to put on the fire and he gets to the fire and this venomous snake comes out because of the heat latches onto his hand. <laughs> and so it's like, really? After all of that, the crashing waves and the storm and the shipwreck and all of that, a snake? Yeah, a snake. So he shakes this thing off into the fire and the 
the inhabitants, they, they called them natives, but that just meant they spoke another language. They weren't like native natives. <laughs> but they're looking on and they're waiting for him to either swell up or to fall over dead. And they began to think about this. And because they were steeped in the, the Roman pantheon of gods, we'll look at that more as we go too. They're steeped in this whole thing. They begin to conclude that this the Greek goddess Justicia uh, was at work here because he didn't swell up and he didn't die. Uh, but they're thinking that, well, he's a murderer because after all, it's fate. He survived the shipwreck and now he's got this snake bite. He's going to croak. That's it. So that he doesn't do that. And then they, they start changing their minds because they're, they're fickle. They, they're, their whole pantheon of, of phony gods uh, it, it, I, I could get into that whole thing, but rest assured, it, they, it led them to really wrong conclusions a lot. So uh, they begin to, he doesn't die, and they begin to not think that he's a murderer. Then they switch up and they think, well, he's, he must be a god. <laughs> and not much in between there. So go figure on that. Anyway, from there, the scene shifts to a man named Publius. <laughs> Talked about that. Probably not going to name my kids or grandkids Publius. <laughs> but he's a leader of the Maltese people, uh, the inhabitants of the island there. He's also the owner of a large estate, an estate that was large enough for him to set up temporary housing for the people from the ship. So he brings them over. It says that he even it doesn't just give them minimum you know, stuff. He actually entertains these people, uh, a very kind-hearted man. So... Uh, remember, too, that these people were going to need to have lodging to get through the winter. Right now, it's probably either late October, early November uh, in the year 59, and they were coming into winter. Uh, it'd be several months before their unexpected guests would be able to depart, continue on their journey to Rome. So when Paul became aware now of Publius's father being critically ill, uh, we're told that he had some kind of dysentery. He was very sick. Paul went to see him. He laid his hands on him, prayed for him, and he heals this guy. So at that point, word traveled about the island very quickly, probably a small population. Uh, and soon all who were sick were coming to Paul to be healed, and they were. Uh, interesting. Somebody was sent me a thing last week about uh, healing being a spiritual gift and that it's not valid for today. And they totally, they talked about the book of Acts and they totally skipped over this section. Yeah, and I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah, but that's kind of how that goes. You find things to support your opinion and leave it there. Healing is a viable spiritual gift. I have seen that. I haven't seen it much, but I have seen it. And it's powerful when God does it. Now, all, all of this, it, we, we talked again, we talked about it last week. I'll just touch on it. Uh, it reminds me, we, we, we looked at the storm and the shipwreck and the serpent and, and all of this. Like, well, how does all of that connect? How, why is all of this happening? What was the point in all of that? Uh, and I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And it tells us, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Interesting. When we look at these events through the eyes of faith, it's only then that it makes sense uh, that we're able to understand what's been going on. Remember, it had been difficult for them to see it in the moment. They lost hope. They were they were freaked out. They thought, you know what, we're dead. We're, we're <laughs> this ship is going to sink, and we're going to be on it. And yet, and yet, 
what God was doing. He said, we're told that he was directing them to a certain island and that as things unfolded, we see that all of this happened was because God loved the people on that ship. He was going to allow supernatural events to come about, that they would all be saved. He would, they would see all these people healed, and he loved the people on that island as well. And so as he now pours out his spirit, and this great revival breaks out on the island of Malta, we begin to understand that God was at work, and he was in it all along. He was using the adversity to accomplish his purposes. And folks, that's a hard thing for us to understand at times because all of us face adversity, but that's part of what God does. And the just shall live by faith. As we look at these things, we must look at these things in our lives through the eyes of faith. Otherwise, we get overwhelmed. Uh, praying this morning, hearing somebody say, you know, I, I, Lord, I know you've got this. And, and so often I want that to be the prayer of my heart because things come up, things happen. Things come up that overwhelm. Things come up that we just don't, we cannot figure out. And yet God was moving in these people's lives all along in subtle, but very powerful ways. What a great encouragement for us uh, that he was moving in the midst of all these difficulties. What were his purposes in it? You know, often we look at Romans eight twenty eight. 28, um, when we should, for God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.29 is hooked to that, and we often don't go there. What does it say there? It says that for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Folks, we have learning to be like Jesus on the wall here before and after the service and, and that's part of the, that's the sort of the tagline that our church uses. And that is so important because we are being conformed now to the image of his son. That's what we call growth. And these people that knew the Lord in this were growing through it. Those that didn't were growing to understand. They were coming to understand that he was working for their ultimate good and for their eternal good as well. Finally, we wrapped up last week. We looked at four types of storms. I'm just going to mention them. Uh, if you weren't here last week and you want to do a deeper dive on that, catch the podcast or the YouTube video or whatever. Uh, but we talked about storms of correction, where God allows us to be corrected through the storms that we encounter in our lives. We talked about storms of instruction, where he teaches us through difficult times. Storms of direction, where he, I may be going one direction and God allows circumstances to come to bear in my life, where now I have to go another direction. I shared that that was the nature of what happened to me when my heart failed a year ago. Completely changed the course of my life. And storms of judgment, looking at the fact that God has used storms of judgment like he did in the days of Noah, and he will again. And that there's a firestorm of judgment out on the horizon that will come. And you're either ready for it or you're not. So as we look at and we wrap up this whole account on Malta, you can only imagine the work that was done over these months, the, the, with the island's inhabitants as well as the people from the ship, God was working. Luke doesn't go into detail here. He's giving us a brief summary as he goes along. But you got to know that there were a lot of things going on. I, I think about that sometimes in our church. It's like, I see your faces on Sunday morning, and I know there's a lot going on with people in this room. I know that there are a lot of situations. There are trials. There are, are, there are hurts. There are issues. Things that are happening. And, I, and it blesses me to be able to pray for those to whom I become aware. But think about all of the people on this island. He's doing a powerful, powerful work. Now, 
By this time, it was early in the year 60 AD. It was probably late February, February or early March, and typhoon season was ending. The Euroclidon was essentially a typhoon. And, and in the same way that we have hurricane season here in the United States, to which we are now engaged, uh, that season, it, it has sort of its own dates. It doesn't follow exactly fall and winter and all of that. And that particular season in the Mediterranean was ending, and they're ready to board a ship and continue their voyage. So we'll pick it up in verse 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. So Paul mentions now another Egyptian grain ship here. No doubt it was a grain ship because the, the fertile Nile Delta was uh, where much of the, the grain, the food for people in the empire came from. Uh, and so uh, that it also wintered on Malta. Now, when he talks about the twin brothers here, that would be the, the, the two sons, the twin sons of Zeus. Again, getting into to the Greek and Roman pantheons of gods, uh, Castor and Pollux were their names. Now, what was believed, why they had these two sons as the figurehead the, the, uh, at the point of the bow on the ship, uh, is they were the patrons of sailors in the Roman pantheons of gods. Uh, Poseidon had given them power. This is what they were taught and control over the wind and the waves and storms. So uh, being superstitious, the, the sailors there, uh, they felt that they'd have protection by having a figurehead made of the statues of these twin brothers. Verse 12, in landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. So as we see here in the second slide, Syracuse was about 80 miles north of Malta, and it was the capital port city of Sicily, uh, located on the east of the southeast coast of yeah, if you look at Italy as like the, the, the boot and Sicily is like the ball, it was on the southeast coast there of Sicily where Syracuse was. So verse 13, from there we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day we came to Puteoli. From there we found brethren and we were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. So Regium was a seaport on the very southerly tip of Italy. So now they're in Italy. And to circle round meant that they followed the coast of Sicily around to Regium. So when Luke talks about the south wind blowing here, that's a good thing for them. That meant that they had the wind at their backs and, and they were going to make good time sailing north up the coast. And so they traveled about 180 miles in two days up the Italian coast to a, a city called Puteoli. Uh, and I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, so we'll just go with it. Uh, <laughs> But uh, Puteoli was known as the, the, it was a shipping terminal, it was a shipping hub for the grain ships that were coming from Egypt. That was where they, they were destined, where they would be offloaded, and then the grain distributed to different parts uh, of the empire. It was on the northerly coast of the Bay of Naples, uh, protected from the, the, the northerly storms that were common in the region. So here, now, something that's interesting, we don't know if the centurion or Paul sent letters ahead to Rome from here, uh, we're not sure. But however, in verse 15, uh, we see that somehow it had become known that they were nearing the end of their journey. Uh, so after staying a week with some fellow Christians at Fudioli, they set out to make the 120-mile journey to Rome on foot overland. Uh, we're told here that, that they, they, did, they took off and they began now, this is, they would be now on the Appian Way. And I've got a couple of slides here of the Appian Way. 
it, back in 310 BC, the Romans, the, the, as the Roman Empire was gaining momentum, they attacked southern Italy. In order to do that effectively, they built this road, the Appian Way, and it went from Rome all the way to the southeast coast of Italy. Uh, and it was for the military. It was, a, it was for troop movements. But now in the first century, they still used it. It had lights at night. They had soldiers patrolling it. It was a very safe road to travel. And it was a well-traveled road. It was a well-known road to take them from Fudioli all the way up to Rome. So uh, as you see in these slides four and five, uh, the Appian Way, it was, it was a beautiful road. Many parts of the road still exist. Now, they're still trying to figure out where the, the beginning of it was because that's been buried yeah, they're in Rome, but they, they had, there are a lot of sections of this road that after 2,000 years are still uh, in use. Verse 15, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as a PE forum and the three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. I think that's great. So when news arrived that Paul was in Italy, the Christians from Rome uh, went down to greet him. So we see here in the sixth slide a, a close-up map showing how someone as far as the town of three inns or three taverns, it's, it's, depending on your translation, and there were not three taverns in the town. It wasn't like, oh, that's the, that's the bar stop. Uh, what it was, there were three places of business and they called them, and one was a tavern. There was also a, a thing for horses, I don't remember, and a store. I, I read about it and, and quickly forgot it because it's not important. But so that was about 30 miles south of the city, uh, south of Rome. Some went even further, went down to a PE Forum, which was about 43 miles away. So this is a considerable walk for the people that want. They were so excited to see Paul that they go down to meet him. Now, understand, too, Paul had already written the book of Romans several years before. And in chapter 16 of Romans, he mentions a number of Christians from the church in Rome that he personally knew. Uh, for instance, Priscilla and Aquila. Interesting. They'd been banished from Rome under Emperor Claudius uh, way back in 48. I think it was 48. I, I might be wrong on the date, but it was a number of years before, probably 12 years before this. They were, Claudius sent everybody out and he banished the, the Jews and Christians from Rome. Now, they met Paul in Corinth about eight years before this, where they were both tent makers. They had that in common. We looked at that here in the book of Acts. And so Paul had just showed up in Corinth. He hooks up with Aquila and Priscilla. He begins to do his work. And they team up not just to do tent making, but they team up to do ministry and to reach the people in Corinth. Now, from there, Paul left and he was going to head back to go to the feast and wrap up his second missionary journey he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him and he stops briefly in Ephesus and he leaves them there. They end up being greatly used of God there in Ephesus as Paul continued on. So uh, he goes back to Jerusalem. That ends, that finishes his second journey and all of that. But evidently at some point, uh, Claudius was poisoned by his wife in the year 54 um, Nero became the emperor, and so things settled down for the people that had been banished. They lost their home. And so at some point, uh, Priscilla and Aquila went back home. Uh, they had actually become leaders in the Roman church. They, they, Paul says, greet the church that is in your house. And the, that's how they organized in those days. So, I, and I, I, Luke doesn't tell us, but I wonder, were they in this group 
that came down from Rome to three inns uh, or to the P Forum? We don't know. However, we're told that Paul was thankful and encouraged uh, when he saw the Christians, when he saw the, the brothers and the sisters come down to meet him. And I believe, it, again, doesn't say, but very likely there were familiar faces among those who came to meet him there. Verse 16, now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, this is about 30 years, roughly a little under 30 years, after Acts chapter 1, where Jesus told his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That had now taken place. With Paul's arrival in Rome, what Jesus had prophesied had come about. Uh, He is standing in the world's capital at this moment. Uh, It was the center of of earth as far as they were concerned, as far as their culture. Yeah, we look, we see there was a lot more. But to the ends of the earth, the known world at that time, the gospel had been carried. Now, a little bit about Rome. The population of Rome in the first century, about the time that Paul showed up, would have been around a million people. Uh, they had a very highly developed culture, society. Uh, just to give you an idea, Portland is about 640,000 uh, population. So try to imagine this huge city. Uh, it's about one and a half times the size of Portland with bridges and stadiums, entertainment venues and all, because again, the Romans were really into culture. Uh, whatever we have, they had. Uh, yeah, of course, more primitive in the sense that they didn't have mass transportation and all of that. Uh, but it's interesting because culturally, there were two cries that uh, the Romans made under Nero's rule. There was the cry for bread and the cry for the circus. Uh, all the people cared about was give me enough food to live on, and let me into the arena to see the gladiators, to see the games, to see the animals. I, that, and that became known. That was written years before this. Uh, we'll go into all the, the origins of that. But it, it had been known. A famous guy had written that. But it's still used today to describe a people who voluntarily trade their freedoms uh, in exchange for a stable yet autocratic or very dictatorial form of government. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> if it's... Uh, there's so many similarities between ancient Rome and the world we live in today. It's interesting because Rome was a, it was absolutely in decadent decline at this point in time. I mean, uh, look at the things that we experienced. Uh, sexual immorality was rampant. I mean, it was accepted. Uh, pedophilia was rampant. I mean, it was a, it was a tough place. Their culture was disintegrating as Paul had finally made it to Rome. Remember, Paul always had wanted to go to Rome. He had written about it earlier on. He had no clue at that time that when he did, that he would go to Rome, but he had no clue at that time that he would go in chain. Now, we're told the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, and that would be the praetorian guard. Now, a praetor was a governing official, all right? The praetorium was the place where they lived. The Praetorian Guard would be the people that guarded the government officials. And uh, in this case, it would be the emperor himself. All right. Uh, Now, their influence, yeah, it it included their role as personal bodyguards to the emperor, but they were also responsible for maintaining law and order in the city of Rome 
uh, and they had broad authority to do so within the city. So the prisoners, no doubt, uh, then were delivered up. Some were would go on to be gladiators. Some would fight with the gladiators. Some would be fed to the animals in the arena. That was sport in that day. But because Paul is a Roman citizen, he's allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier uh, that would have charge over him. So we're told also, now interesting too, in chapter 27, verse 1, we get some background on Julius, the centurion who had been guarding Paul throughout his journey to Rome, uh, that he was a, a part of the Augustan regiment. Now, that doesn't mean Emperor Augustine. When it's the Augustan, it means the August one was the ruler. He was the emperor. It was the, the emperor's personal regiment. It was sort of like the secret service in our day. And he was part of this elite group of soldiers that were part of that. So it's pretty safe to assume that he knows some of the men in the Praetorian Guard, probably knew some of them well, serving in the military together with these men uh, in a similar uh, fashion. So uh, as we look at that, think with me for a moment. I, 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 I just I don't want this moment to be lost because, again, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes, and uh, I don't want to take a lot of license with it, but I want to just understand that there were things going on that must have been powerful. What would it have been like in this moment for Julius? What was it like for him and Paul to look into each other's eyes after all that they'd been through together? You have to believe that they had conversations. I mean, he had stepped up. He had violated a Roman edict to spare Paul's life when they were abandoning ship. And and he had gone to bat for this guy more than once. Uh, You have to believe that through this seven months that for Julius... Perhaps he was thinking, I'll I'll never forget these seven months together with you, Paul. The storm, your God, the miracles, the shipwreck, the serpent, the healings, the journey, all of it. This guy had been an eyewitness to, and he had been watching Paul's life. Perhaps he was thinking how my life has been transformed. I believe that Julius came to know the Lord through the apostle Paul, through these events, because he has great favor. Perhaps he's thinking, I've seen the love you have for people all along the way, Paul, as you pointed each one to the love of Jesus Christ. I saw how overjoyed you were uh, with the love that others have for you as I watched your interactions with that community of believers that traveled down from Rome to meet you. You got to know this guy was watching Paul's life. What would it have been like for uh, Julius to, to look into Paul's eyes and, and, and now delivering him to Rome saying, you know, brother, I talked to my friends here. They're going to take care of you because Paul ends up being taken very well care of in Rome. Now, when it says that he was encouraged when he saw the people, he had no idea. We read the end from the beginning, gang. We see that, yeah, he's going to spend two years there. He's going to write a bunch of letters and we're going to get a lot of the New Testament out of this and all. He had no idea. All he knew was that he was in chains and he was about to get handed off to unknown circumstances in this powerful center of, the, of the, the known world that he had been told by Jesus that he was going to go, but he had no idea how. He had no idea what the conditions would be. And he was a mature enough Christian to, at this point to know that it was probably not going to all be rosy. And yet this man, Julius, perhaps he asked Paul if they could get on their knees together, pray together before he hands him off. We don't know, but he's shown 
Paul kindness, great favor along the way. Verse 17, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. That's a mouthful. Throughout his travels, Paul's custom, you remember if you if you have looked and you've examined his three missionary journeys up until this point, he would show up in a city and where was the first place he would go? He would head for the synagogue. That's right. He wanted to appeal first to the Jews, to his countrymen. Uh, and he knew that there was a large contingent of Jews in this city. In Romans 1.16, I'm reminded here, he, Paul wrote prior to this, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So now, chained... He reaches out for the Jewish leaders in Rome to come to him. And he wastes no time as he addresses them as brothers because he wants to illustrate that they stood on common ground. Uh, He lets them know of his innocence as he lays out his case. He says, I haven't broken any Roman or any Jewish laws, uh, nor did I have a grudge against them, try to file a counterclaim against these guys for railroading me, essentially. Uh, But in verse 20, he gets to the point. All that had gone on uh, was for one simple reason. He was in chains for the hope of Israel, for the cause of their Messiah. Now, I want to point something out here with regard to Paul's chains. During both his first and his second imprisonments in Rome, because he went through two, this first one would be for two years under essentially house arrest in a rented house. The second would be in the Mamertine prison, and it is a horrible place. I've stood there and looked at it. It used to be... uh, uh, we call it the water vessel underground. Yeah, one of those. Anyway, uh, it, it's a horrible place. It, but in both instances, he referred to himself not as a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Jesus or a prisoner of the Lord. Um, as he wrote letters during his imprisonments to, uh, to the, the churches he planted, also to people he'd met along the way, he never referred to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He always referred to himself a prisoner of Christ. So in that sense, he wasn't chained to Rome. Rome was chained to him. Uh, it's just an interesting way that God set that up. So during his first imprisonment in a rented house for two years, Paul would have been chained to a series of Roman guards. These guys would have probably six-hour shifts. They'd have four guards. They would, And we learned that from earlier in the book of Acts when he was in the Roman jail there in Jerusalem. Uh, not him, but when Peter was there. Um, they would have these, these six-hour shifts and they would have the changing of the guards. So think with me for a minute about the impact that would have had on the guards as one person after another came to visit. Paul was able to encourage them, share the love of Christ with his visitors. Think about the Holy Spirit silently working in those guards as he simply loved on people, <laughs> showed them compassion, prayed for them, showed them from God's word where things were at. Uh, that there's truly hope in this life, hope for the next. I mean, this would have happened over and over and over again with the same guards. As Paul concluded his letter to the church at Philippi from Rome, it was one of his prison epistles, 
we get a glimpse of what life must have looked like for the guards who had been chained to him. In Philippians 4.22, he writes, all the saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. (laughs) So the guys that he was chained to were coming to know Christ. Think about it. These guys had lives. Yeah, they were soldiers. They were, they were guards, but they also had lives. And, you know, you get home. How was work today, honey? Well, I was chained to this guy, Paul, again. And it starts out, it's like, yeah, all he does is talk about this Jesus all the time. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm just, yeah, yeah, what's for dinner? And then as time goes on, you, you know, honey, I, I'm beginning to wonder if there's something to this because I've seen the same people coming to visit him and I'm seeing their lives change. I'm seeing their their hearts transformed. I'm seeing them get a hold of this relationship with Jesus thing. You know, there might be something to it. And then as time goes on, something amazing happened at work today, sweetheart. I gave my life to Jesus. And I'm telling you, I think it was the best thing, the most important thing I ever could have done. Just, I mean, again, we're reading between the lines here, but you got to know that there was a huge impact that this man had everywhere he went and with every person he encountered. And when he's got these guys chained to him, again, Rome is chained to him. He's not chained to Rome. And he is representing Christ well in the midst of all of it. Verse 21, and when they, the, they were still with the Jews, when they said to him, we, never re- we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, Paul. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So the Jewish leaders, they informed Paul, uh, they weren't, hadn't been warned about him. They said, you know, you don't have a bad reputation with us. Uh, but we want to, we want to meet with you. We need to get together, Paul, because we want you to tell us about this movement based on the teachings of this Jesus that we keep hearing about because it's being spoken against everywhere. What that tells us is that their comments, they revealed that the dividing line between Jews and Christians had already grown, already grown very deep. That division was going to, and we'll see, it opens up here shortly. Verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, uh, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, uh, what we look at as the Old Testament, for them it was the Bible, the word of God, from morning till evening. So he spends the whole day. It says, and some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So With meticulous care, Paul took the entire day to lay out from God's word that Jesus had indeed been their promised Messiah. He's saying, look at this. Now look at this. Now look at this. Now look at this. How can you, there is no way that this could not be the case. He's laying out many convincing proofs that that's what was going on and that Jesus was the one that Israel had been looking for all along. He's also letting them know there's no doubt that he taught what Jesus taught, that Christ uh, in him, that God ushered in a, a spiritual kingdom that would take root in the hearts of men before it would come even close to, to taking over governments of the world. Because many of the Jewish people of Jesus's day and now Paul's day were looking for a political kingdom. They thought that this Messiah was going to overthrow Rome and he didn't do that. Because he needed to save man, not from Rome, but save man from himself. Once again, as it happened in city after city, as Paul traveled about on his previous missionary journeys, 
the gospel divided the Jewish community, and now it was doing that in Rome. What began as an orderly presentation from God's word sadly ended up in a loud disagreement. So as the men left, Paul warned them that their rejection of Christ was a symptom that ran far deeper than they're just simply disagreeing with him. Well, I don't agree with you, Paul. Well, that's not the issue. You can agree with me or not. The issue is there, there are some major things going on here. And he warned them that their stubbornness towards God, their rejection would lead to tremendous spiritual damage in their lives uh, with eternal consequences. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 in driving that point home. Verse 25, so when they didn't agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word, quote, and this is Isaiah here, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet to our fathers saying, okay, this is Isaiah, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull their ears hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. That's heavy and that's powerful. In Isaiah's day, the spiritual condition of the nation had, it had gotten so bad that Isaiah's preaching would only serve to make most of his listeners worse. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And raise the volume. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And that was what was going on here. They would become more resistant to God, not less. So when Paul compared those who walked out on him to Isaiah's generation, he was warning them that they were rejecting a message that their hearts knew was true. You, I'll tell you what, I remember I was with uh, a guy one time and he was sharing his testimony of how he came to Christ and it was through an innocent conversation. Somebody had presented the gospel to him and he threw it off. And then Months later, he was talking to somebody and this person just looked at him and said, you know in your heart what's right. And that was it. That's all that this person said. And the force of conviction of God's spirit came upon him. And in that moment, he was converted. He was forever changed. He understood that he had been rejecting and rejecting and rejecting. But in his heart, all along, he knew what was right. Folks, I don't know where you're at this morning with the Lord, but if you have been rejecting, whether you're here or you're watching online, you know in your heart what's right. And God wants to pour out his love on your life. Won't you let him? Jesus also used this passage uh, regarding human unbelief in all four of the Gospels. He recites Isaiah in all four. uh, And also, you know, by this time, Paul had already penned Romans 9 through 11. And now if you look at a quick summary of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8 is great instruction, doctrine, great doctrine. 9 through 11 is like a parenthesis. It's all about Israel. It's all about Israel rejecting. It's all about Israel's partial hardness. So he'd already written that. And in those chapters, 9 through 11 in the book of Romans, he shares the great burden he has for his countrymen, the Jews. He says, I would be severed from Christ myself if that's what it took for my countrymen to be saved. That's a lot. His purpose in using this passage here in Rome was to illustrate that the Israel of the Old Testament would not, did not fully believe either. Uh, There was a remnant of faith, but as with these men here, there was a majority that were unbelieving. Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And they have heard it, and are still hearing it. 
I look at this, this one verse, I look at this as the climax of the whole book of Acts. From Jerusalem to Rome, most Jews rejected it. And in city after city, the message was then directed to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. The gospel focus would be turned to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad? Now in the capital of the Roman world, the same spiritual hardening had occurred. A deep division happened with the Jews. And that hardening continues, that hardness continues to this day. It will not be taken away until what what the book of Romans refers to as the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a hardness that Paul says in 2 Corinthians that a veil lies over their heart. The veil is only removed in Christ. God's not finished with the nation of Israel. Don't think for a minute that he is. He loves that nation. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Israel on the world stage today a pivotal, pivotal nation in world events. How could this little backwater nation on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, this tiny little nation, dominate world affairs? It's because of the people of God. Have been, still are. Verse 29, And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Now, in verse 29, maybe in your translation, it goes from verse 28 to verse 30. I want to explain that. Uh, It's not that somebody forgot to put it in. There's a little bit of question there as to whether it's included in the scripture. Um, And it's because earlier dated manuscripts didn't contain it. And the thinking among scholars that do the translating is that the earlier the manuscript, the more accurate it is. And that makes sense. So when the New King James, or the King James, the New King James based off the King James, when it was written... The manuscripts didn't, they hadn't, didn't exist at that time. They hadn't been discovered that showed that this verse was left out. But I, I want to make two comments about this and we'll move on because really at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. And here's why. First, there are no discrepancies, zero, in the New Testament that have to do with major doctrinal positions. You can rely on it. All right. I don't want you to get tripped up. I mean, there's, there's another verse. I think it's first John five, seven. And in many translations, it goes from five, five to, or five, six to five, eight, because it's left out. Same kind of deal. Earlier manuscripts, nah, I don't see it there. But the second thing I want to say about it is that verse 25 clearly states and indicates that there was a disagreement between the Jews. Thus, there's nothing inconsistent about verse 29 in the greater context of this passage. It's there. Whether the literal words are there or not, it's there. Paul states that they were upset and there was a great division between these men as they left Paul's uh, place. Verse 30, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no one forbidding him. I think it's interesting because Paul made a lot of enemies wherever he went and God saw to it that he was guarded. (laughs) I just think that it's amazing. That here the guy, you know, he's supposed to be under house arrest. He ends up actually with his own personal bodyguard the whole time he's in Rome. Now, during this two-year period, Paul would write what we call the prison epistles. And that was Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Interesting. Later, a couple of years after this, he would write First Timothy and Titus. Then about five years from this point, he would write his swan song, Second Timothy, right before, shortly before he was executed under Nero. And so it was that the kingdom message under God's sovereign control went from Jew to Gentile. 
and from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then spreading across the world all the way to Rome. Interesting, the last word in, in Greek, anyway, where, where we read in verse 31, where it says, no one forbidding him, that's one word. It's the word akalutos in Greek. And what it means is without hindrance. How fitting it is that that's the last word in the book of Acts. Men may bind a preacher, but the word of God will never be chained. Amen. And that wraps up the book of Acts. I want to look at some things before we actually wrap up this morning. The first thing I want to talk about is what chapter are you in? As Paul drew near the city, his arrival signified the end of a chapter in his life, which had started two and a half years before in Jerusalem, as Jesus uh, appeared to him, told him that he would bear witness of him in Rome. And the events that he experienced in Jerusalem signified the end of the chapter before that. We call it Paul's third missionary journey. And so it goes. There was chapter after chapter. The ending of one chapter in our lives is always the beginning of the next. As we look back over the book of Acts, we see that Paul's life was anything but easy for the, from the moment that Jesus took hold of his life there on that road to Damascus. He was told then, you'll suffer many things, Paul. And although we look at Paul as a superhero of the faith, it's pretty clear from the pages of scripture that these things got to him at times. There were times where he became very discouraged. There are times, he says, with many tears, many sorrows, many trials. I believe there's a lesson in this for us. So the question becomes, what does this chapter in your life look like? You know, I used to tell people that the only constant in life is change. And in a sense, that's true. Because as I mentioned earlier, our lives are not static. They're, they're dynamic. They're, they're, things are always changing. But you know, as the years have gone by, the last 40 years, this month, in about two weeks, I'll have my 40th birthday. And you look at me, you go, you're not 40. But I'll have my 40th birthday in Jesus. Because 40 years ago, in 1983, I gave my life to Jesus. But as the years have gone by, uh, and I look at my life over that 40 years, I can honestly say that the only constant in life is him, is Jesus. He's an ever-present help in time of need. He's always with us. Life changes. We change. Perhaps you're in a difficult chapter today. Be encouraged. Uh, our lives, they, again, they're never static. It, it won't always be this way. And I, as a pastor, many times over the years, I will be counseling with someone. And, and sometimes the, the only thing that is really makes sense to say, the, the most encouraging thing I can say is, look, hang in there. I know it hurts. I know it's hard. I know it's this or I know it's that. It won't always be this way. And folks, hang on to that if you're in a tough chapter know that God is moving, know that just like those people with the shipwreck and the snake and the storm and all of that, God was moving. He was working. He was accomplishing divine purposes through it all. He hasn't changed. He's doing that in your life and in my life presently. So what does that chapter look like? If it's a great chapter, praise the Lord, but know that chapters in our lives come and go. They begin and they end. And uh, I wrote in my notes, bonus content. (laughs) Sooner than all of us think, this life will be over. We'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. Now that's a chapter worth hanging on to. The second thing I want to talk about is avoid the allure of bread and circuses. We live in a hedonistic world. We live in a hedonistic society. I'll tell you what, it is just pumped at us. Oh, free money from the government, they said. Oh, great. Can't wait. And now we're paying for it. But there's a difference. 
between enjoying the life that God has given us and a life that's devoted to living for pleasure. Shortly before he was executed in Rome, uh, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. His, he had referred to him as his true son in the faith. In Second Timothy, Timothy 3, Paul goes down a whole list here. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but uh, a couple of things. He talks about the condition of men's hearts. He says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. And then he goes on down through this list, and he ends it with saying, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Folks, this is Rome. We live in a culture that is in absolute decay. And the allure of the world is always there. Come on, just take a hold a little bit. Yeah, enjoy, indulge yourself. Has God really said? Tell you what, it's a trap. Now, on the other hand, we're not called to be ascetics either. You know, we don't, we're not going to go live in a monastery somewhere and torture ourselves. Those who practice a severe form of self-discipline, abstaining from all forms of indulgence, that's not it either. So what's the balance, pastor? <laughs> what are you saying? And here's what I, you know, here's just some good advice. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Enjoy it. My pastor used to tell me that all the time. John, enjoy your ministry. Don't get all caught up in all the stress. Just enjoy it. Enjoy the life God has given you. And some of the best advice I ever got, just enjoy it. You know what? The joy of the Lord is my strength. So enjoy the life. Serve him with abandon. What do you mean by that? There's something for each of us to do. And I'll tell you what, great blessing in it. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And learn to trust him with the details. So enjoy the life God has given you. Serve him with abandon. And learn to trust him with the details. Philippians 4, Paul wrote this from being imprisoned, from his time in Rome. In 4.11, he says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, to both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're called to live differently than the world. We're not to be tossed around by every circumstance. There is just a steadfastness that God will instill in the soul of his people that is sturdy and reliable, and and it causes our lives to even out. He makes straight that highway. That goes from being bumps and, and crevices and all of that. And as we, as we walk with him, as we commit our lives to him and to his ways and his purposes in our lives, serving him with abandon, loving him above everything else, he works, he moves. Give him the details. The third thing I want to talk about is they're watching. Okay, don't be paranoid. They're watching. Put yourself in Julius the Centurion's place over the seven months that he was with Paul on a daily basis. Think about it. Now, push yourself in the place of the Praetorian guards who were charged with Paul's care for those years. They were chained to him, or he was chained to them. Actually, they were chained to him. Think about the Holy Spirit silently working as you watch Paul simply love on people, showing them compassion, praying for them, showing them from God's word that there truly is hope in this life and hope for the next. What would have been like for those people? What would it have been like for Julius? What would it have been like for those guards? People are watching our lives. What do they see? Are they seeing a grumpy old guy or gal? Are they seeing somebody that's tossed around by every circumstance that's just mad at the world? Are they seeing somebody that says, yeah, it's tough, but let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you where you can find solution. Maybe not a solution to the problem, but a solution to the way you're dealing with the problem. 
These guys saw that over and over and over again. They saw a life well lived in chains. Maybe your life's not chained, but maybe what God wants to speak to you is that your life is a witness. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. That's exactly what was happening in Paul the apostle's life throughout these years. That remember back when we were talking about back, it was in Acts 17, whatever it is, where he was on the Temple Mount, falsely accused, and the crowd came, beat him up. He ended up getting arrested, taken into custody by the Romans. He has not been a free man since that time. And yet he wrote books like the book of Philippians, the letter to the church of Philippi. That is the most joyful letter in all of the New Testament, filled with joy. I can't wait to meet this guy. And I'll probably go, that's Paul. But you know, just think about it because he had nothing different than what we have. Yeah, he was filled with God's spirit. And yeah, he understood what it was to pay a price for walking with Jesus. My prayer is for us that we do too. It's not always easy. And yet as people watch our lives, as we get tossed around, what are they going to see? Are they going to see a life that's well lived? Are they going to see a life that is trusting him for the details? That's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this. Uh, I thank you for this whole study in the book of Acts as we've wrapped it up this morning, moving on to a new book next week. I pray, Father, that you would just stir our hearts. Lord, stir us up. Stir us up to love and good works as your word declares. Give us insight, wisdom, discernment into what it is to live our lives with abandon, uh, to serve you to live well in the midst of tough circumstances, to see you working and moving in people's hearts and lives around us. Lord, let our light so shine before men that they would be noticed by them and glorify you. That's our heart's desire. Lord, we all have a long ways to go. We all have struggles and, and issues and stuff. And yet we know that you love us not because we generate all kinds of worth in being loved, but because you choose to love us right where we're at. I pray for those who are struggling this morning, Lord, that they would cast their cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. I pray for those who are doing well, Father, that they would embrace you in greater measure. And Lord, that we could see you in the circumstances in our lives, even though we don't understand it, that we could see your hand working, moving, wooing, arranging. Give us spiritual insight, Father. Let us have those eyes of faith that see beyond the physical into the work that you're doing. We give ourselves afresh to you. We pray your will would be done in us and through us as we go out there and we mix with a burdened and fallen and and messed up world. Thank you. In Jesus' name.